All right, well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. Proverbs 27, the righteous man who walks in his integrity. Blessed are his children. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's funny how at a church often, you know, Mother's Day, there's like a video with flowers and, you know, maybe we give flowers out to the moms. But for Father's Day, it's like a lump of coal or, you know, like, yeah, you're doing okay. Pick it up a little bit. But I, I just want to say we, we really appreciate you fathers. And I think it's easy for fathers, I'm a new father, to think that these, the everyday decisions about, you know, helping out with the kid and going to work and biting your tongue at work and all those different things, those seem to be mundane. But the Bible teaches that that is the battlefield with which daughters and which with sons are won or lost. So thank you, fathers, for the everyday obedience that you have. And we appreciate you. We thank you. And we, we value you. And, and I hope you're, hope you're encouraged. We really do um, understand how important you are. So thank you for all the work that you, that you do. <clears throat> So, um, you know, I don't know about you, but as I kind of look around our world today, there just seems to be a lot of chaos and confusion, right? I think it, that, you know, it, it became more poignant last Sunday with the, uh, you know, the shooting at the nightclub in Orlando. And we see not only that tragedy, but tragedies throughout the world. The migrant crisis in the Middle East, where moms and dads and babies are trying to flee this chaos, and they get whatever they can. They try to float across the Mediterranean, and they die. And you know, we see world hunger, we, uh, health crises, poverty. You see systemic poverty and racism even in our own country. The prison system is bursting at the seams. There's increasing income inequality, joblessness, brokenness. And maybe uh, you, uh, you're doing okay. You can kind of maybe see that stuff at a distance. But it isn't until the waves of a crisis crash upon the shore of your family or of your body that the chaos becomes all the more real. And as a Christian, this shouldn't surprise me. It shouldn't surprise you because the Bible teaches that Inside the heart of every man is, the heart is bent toward evil. We can't only blame wrongdoing on mental disease or upbringing or cultural pressure or the need for democracy. It shouldn't surprise me that you see these things, but what does surprise me, I think, is the, is the, the discourse in our country these days. We, you know, not just political. Every, every realm seems like you know, that every tragedy is just an opportunity to stand on a political platform. There's no longer space for thoughts or tears before the tirades fill our timelines. There's no introspection, only indignation. No search for truth, only a push for more territory. No facts, only fodder for the news cycle. Nothing seems to make sense. It's like we're, living under the over, under, like we're living under an overpass. We're trying to hear the conversations of the cars that drive by. But, you know, we look at the, the landscape and the culture of 2016. It's not a lot different 
in the first century that we see in the book of Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts in our voyage series. And up until this point, things are going fantastically. I mean, arguably, couldn't, have been, couldn't be going any better. But here in the chapter 12, we learn of a great, great tragedy in the early church. And we see this tragedy, and we see this oppression, but at the end of chapter 12, we read this, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So my hope this morning is to encourage you in the midst of it all, this, no matter the tragedy, no matter the circumstance, no matter the heartbreak, the word of God keeps increasing and multiplying. And this provides us great peace and great comfort and great steadfastness in the midst of it. So before we jump into Acts 12, let me, let me, just, let me pray real quick. Oh God, Lord, you're so good. You are, you are our good, good father. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your presence with us. Lord, thank you for your word and your son. Lord, uh, speak to us this morning as we look to make much of Jesus and be better equipped, uh, sons and daughters, to love you and make you known. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So up until this point, people are coming to faith in the early church. Churches are being planted. Missions is going on. People are caring for the poor and caring for the needy. People are being brought, uh, being taught their faith. There's greater, greater levels of inclusion. For the first time ever, the Gentiles are invited into the church. And a church actually started in the most pagan city of Antioch, not out of a synagogue, but completely from conversion of the local church, of the local pagans. I mean, it is growing fantastically and in the Bible, in very stark language, tells us of a great tragedy of this early church. Look with me, Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of guards, soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter, went, Peter was kept in prison, but earnestly prayer for him was made to God by the church. Like a blow to the gut, Herod Agrippa I arrests James, one of the 12 disciples, the Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Jesus, and because it was politically advantageous, had him killed publicly with a sword. And then Peter, another one of the key leaders in the local church, is arrested, and he is going to be executed once the Passover is over. Everything's going great, boom, tragedy strikes. Can you imagine, at least I can, the early church at that point? God, we are we have sold everything we have to give it to the, your work. We have committed our entire lives. We're learning about you. We're praying. We're evangelizing. We're witnessing what's going on. Have you abandoned us? Have you just thrown up your hands? Is this, where are you? They must have felt like God has abandoned them. 
And maybe you've experienced a time where you're doing God's work. You're serving God. You're witnessing to your neighbor. You're being obedient. You're experiencing victories in areas you never have. And all of a sudden, tragedy strikes. You lose a job. You get the diagnosis. The spouse leaves. And maybe you too have experienced, God, have you abandoned me? You know, we've, talk, we've been talking about the book of Acts. It's basically an outworking of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, of Jesus' words that says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So God gives him this huge task to share the gospel to the end of the, end of the earth. It's a big job. But it's really important to remember that right before he said, Acts 1.8, he said this from, from Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded them, commanded you. And maybe you're familiar with this verse, but don't forget the end. And behold, and look, listen, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus Christ has promised you promised me that no matter the tragedy, the circumstance, the situation, he would be with his disciples and he would be with you all the way until the end. You see, the word of God keeps increasing and keeps multiplying, even in the midst of the tragedy. Why? Because God never leaves us. He's always by our side, even when we don't feel like it. You see, when Jesus ascended, he said, look, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, paraclete. That means a comforter. He is with you and he has made, he knew what he was putting you, he knew what he was putting the church into. He says, look, you're like lambs among wolves, sheep to the slaughter, but I'm not abandoning you. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit as a protector, as a comforter, and as your strength. No matter what is going on, God has not abandoned you. You know, I think the early church got this because they said in verse 5 that they were praying for Peter, that something would happen, that he would be freed. Let's look back at our, at our text, verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him, Peter, out, that very night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. They went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So here's Peter. Within a few hours to be publicly executed and God does a miracle. He sends an angel to rescue Peter. 
But it's funny, the entire time, Peter kind of was thinking, okay, obviously this isn't real. This is a dream. Okay, so we'll go along and chains fell off. I got, so he's walking along the, with the angel, assuming they're going to say some encouraging thing before he goes to his death. And then the angel leaves. He kind of looks around, you know, you know, pinches himself. This is real. Okay. So he's like, all right, what do I do now? So what he does is he heads over to a house that he knows some people are praying for him. You know, one of the encouraging things about this story is that God does miracles even when we don't expect them. You see, God did a miracle for Peter, and the whole time he did not expect it, and God still does miracles today. I tell you, I have to confess, I too easily fall into the wrong-headed notion that God was at work when Christ was on the earth, and then when the Bible was being written and the church was being, was being planted, that he was really involved. But once the Bible was done being written, that he, you know, he kind of, he went to Florida, kind of retired, and then he'll come back one day to kind of clean everything up and take us home. You know, maybe you can kind of fall into that wrong-headed assumption. What's wrong? Because Scripture tells us, history tells us, and today, demographics tell us that the Word of God continues to multiply and continues to increase. Is that because followers of Jesus are so awesome and so obedient and always say the right things and do the right things? Is it because Christianity comes in with the sword to demand that they be converted or die? No, not at all. We come in and say, hey, um, there's a guy who's son of God who loved everybody, was killed for it, rose again, and that he calls you to lay down your life and die, but you'll have eternal life. So they, but, but until he comes again, you love everyone and lay down your life. Give, give a bunch of your money away, a bunch of your time. Like, from the outside, that's not a really good marketing pitch, right? But the word of God continues to increase and multiply because God is still active today. It is spiritual work. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's about, it's, it's a spiritual work. It's a spiritual batter, battle. And God is, he's the creator of our world. He is the current ruler of our world. And he is leading and guiding all activities. And he still uses miracles. You might say, well, Josh, I know the Bible said one time a donkey talked to a prophet. i never seen a donkey talk to me. Where's my miracle? You know, like a... Like, like three wishes from God or something. Well, here's a question. What's a miracle? What is a miracle? Norm Geisler uh, in the, uh, his Christian apologetics says, a miracle is this. It's an unusual outward sign that confirms a message from God. An unusual outward sign that confirms a message from God. And the purpose of a miracle it's, it's not merely as a spectacle to inspire us, but rather it's a sign to draw people to God. And the goal of a miracle is not, to, is not to make you say, whoa, that was cool, but to make you say, wow, God is good. You see, we expect, like Peter, miracles don't happen. Maybe some like 
intangible vision God will give us, but God really doesn't work in our lives. Because we, ex- we, ex- we have a wrong-headed expectation of how God works. See, God does use supernatural miracles, but he also most often uses natural means. You see, when, when, when God parted the Red Sea, it says he used a wind to part the Red Sea. When God gave Hezekiah 15 more years, God said, I'm going to give you 15 more years. In the next verse, it tells him to make this poultice and put it on a, a boil on his leg, and he's lived 15 more years. God uses natural means even, with, even within his miracles. See, I, I think my life group experienced a miracle, an outward, unusual, unusual outward sign that confirms a message from God. See, in our life group, uh, uh, Claire and Jeff in our life group, um, there's two two uh, guys whose wives were pregnant, and they needed a job. They needed benefits, they needed an income, and the wives are pregnant, baby's coming. So we're praying for them. Lord, would you provide for these guys? Would you provide for these guys? Would you provide for these guys? Nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. Two weeks before one of the guys' babies was born, he got a call, offered a great position, something greater than he had expected. So right when that first paycheck comes, he's got money to provide for his family. And what he did, Lord, he said, Lord, thank you, thank you. You are so good to provide this for me. The other guy, wife goes into labor, no job. In the labor ward, I mean, she's like contractions. You know, he's got his ice chips. <laughs> he gets a call. He goes, babe, I got to take this one. <laughs> goes out to the hallway, hello, gets offered a job right then. Look, I think two miracles happened then. Yeah. I think two miracles happened. One is the financial provision. The other is this man is still alive. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think I would have lived to tell that tale if I was this man. If you are asking God for financial provision, what are you expecting? Like a leprechaun to come and throw a pot of gold into your window? No, really, like, like, Lord, provide for me. What are you expecting? God uses natural means for his supernatural purposes. He wants you, whether it's a family thing, whether it's a physical thing, it's a financial thing. He wants to be involved in such a way is that he uses other people to participate in the joy. And you say, wow, God, you are good. No matter the tragedy, no matter the circumstance, the word of God keeps increasing and multiplying because God does miracles, even when we don't expect it. Well, here's Peter, fresh out of prison. He heads to the house where he knows people are gathered to pray. Let's look at uh, verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept, then they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Uh, But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, 
tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So this text is hilarious. So here's Peter. He's, he's, he's like, all right, go see my friends. He knocks on the door. Rhoda comes in. Here's his voice. Runs back in. You know, Peter's like most wanted man in all of Jerusalem. You know, he's like, guys, they go, Peter, our prayers are answered. Peter has escaped. You know what they do? What they say? Nah, that's not, no way. She's like, no, no, he really did. He's out there. I, he, oh, he must, already, he must already be dead. And here's his angel coming to comfort us spiritually. And he goes back and he's like, no, it's still me, Peter, not the angel. See, isn't that just like us? We pray for something. Lord, in their situation, Lord, free Peter. Peter's been freed. No, that's... Uh, <laughs> no, really. Like, don't... Isn't that just like us? Lord, would you provide an opportunity to just make me get out of the humdrum kind of rhythm of my life. Hey, we're taking people to Pearl Island. No, no, no. <laughs> Lord, play for the calves. That would be, <laughs> right? Like what, like what, what, like we, we pray for things, but we don't expect God to answer them. But he does. He answers prayer even when we don't expect it. You see, I'm a I'm a father, a new father, and my son, um, he's starting to talk. So I can kind of, um, uh, lack of a better term, barter with him a little bit. Um, I'd be like, hey, buddy, look, if you, if you eat your dinner and don't throw your food on the floor, after dinner, we'll go outside and catch cicadas. And this is his favorite thing to do. <laughs> so so there, I, I can offer this for one or two motivations. One is I'm motivated for him because I want him to have fun and us to have a good evening and him to go enjoy himself. The second motivation is I could be motivated for me. I don't, want, I don't want him to throw his food on the floor. The first reason is I'm motivated out of love for my son because I, I love my son and I love to see him enjoy, enjoy things. But the second motivation is I'm motivated out of fear of my son. Because if you're a parent, you know there, that a child has a certain power over the well-being of a parent, right? <laughs> I want him to do something that I am powerless to do, namely to have a peaceful evening. <laughs> so Jesus says this in John 14. He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What do you think God's motivation is for offering that to us? Is he motivated, is he making this offer for us because he loves us? Or is he making this offer for himself because he wants something from us? and can't get it himself. Look, God had nothing to gain by sending his son Jesus to earth to die on a cross except for me and you. God doesn't need us for anything, but he wants us. He wants to see the joy in us participating 
and what he has for our lives. Our loving father tells us that prayer works. And he wants us to ask him for things. Not because he's going to control you. I'll give you, you know, I'll give you a spouse if you do what I say. He loves you. And he's asking you to ask him for things so that he can pursue your good. See, the word of God keeps increasing and multiplying. Why? Because God says prayer works even when we lack faith. Let's remember back uh, to what we talked about uh, in the beginning. Well, we have to remember that in the midst of this joy of, of Peter uh, of escaping, of God freeing him, it's the tragedy of James was killed just days before. And James died because it was politically advantageous for Herod Agrippa I to kill him. And today, we see throughout the world, and in our own, in our own world, we see presidents and ayatollahs and warlords and chairmen and other powerful leaders suppressing the truth, oppressing the weak, and killing those who do good. And I think I ask, and rightfully so, we should ask, where's the justice? How come James got killed and Peter didn't? You know, I think in 1987, studies show that there are 1.5 million Christians in Iraq. But due to Islamic persecution, there are only about 10% of those Christians remaining. And most of those have either been killed, have had to flee with just whatever's on their back, or they're in refugee camps. Where's the justice? Where's the justice for faithful believers who are the minority in a predominantly hostile culture? Where's the justice for them? How the word of God keeps increasing and multiplying. It's because the God we serve is just. But he has a different timeline than we have. He has a perfect timeline. And his justice is far greater, far truer, far more equitable than our justice. Look with me, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took on his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So here's Herod, killer of apostles, was struck down by God because he took in his own hands the life of God's people and relished his own glory rather than the glory of God. God could do that to anyone. But he doesn't. Because God is patient. Scripture says that God is patient, not waiting or, or not wanting any to perish, but all to come to faith. Right? The Assads, the warlords, he wants even those people to come to faith. So he's waiting and he's waiting and he's patient and he's hoping and he's, well, he's not hoping, he's planning that someone, even in this room, <laughs> would make their way 
and share the gospel with even the most wicked among us. James, uh, Psalm 9 says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. We but we have to wait on his timing for his justice. So no matter the tragedy, the word of God keeps increasing and multiplying. Why? Because God never abandons us, even when it feels like it. Because God does miracles, even when we don't expect it. Because God says prayer works, even when we lack faith. And because God is just, even when we prefer our own timeline. Okay, well, how do we make sense still of our world, all the tragedies? Do we just kind of keep going? Or what do we do to understand more of how God's using these world events for his purposes? So I think C.S. Lewis uh, has a, a great analogy. So uh, he wrote this newspaper article, it's like real short, called Meditations uh, in a, from a Tool Shed. So he's in a tool shed. I don't know what he's doing in there. But uh, it's a dark tool shed, dusty. It's a beautiful sunny day. He closed himself in there. And in the tool shed, there's a little crack along the door that you see a ray of light coming through and shining on the floor of the tool shed. And in that ray of light, he's looking at this light, and there's little, uh, uh, you know, little pieces of dust going in and out, little pieces of fuzz. And he can see the fuzz when it's in the light, then it disappears, and it comes back, disappears. And all I can see in this shed is the light and then where it's shining on this dirty, dusty thing on the floor. He says this. You look at this, if you look at this ray of light, all you're going to see is this teeny tiny reality of what's going on. These little dust particles in and out. It seems like chaos. But what you must do, especially if you're a Christian, you not... You can't look at the light. You must look along the light. You have to move your eyes along the light. And you might, you might, you'll squint, it'll burn for a second. But once you look along the light, then you can see out. You can see outside of the shed into the reality. You see there's a beautiful lawn, there's trees, there are people, there are birds. There's a plan. There's, there's a deeper, truer reality. You see, that's what God has us do. He calls us not to look at the light and see the chaos, but look along the light. Look to him, look to the cross. Because we must remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, the worst thing we have ever come up with as, a, as humanity, the death of the perfect man on a cross, turned into the greatest thing for all of humanity the offer of salvation to all who believe in Jesus. You see, God controls the course of time. Galatians 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God is guiding history. He guided history, fulfilled prophecy to that day on Calvary, and he's guiding history for one day Christ will come again. If you're a Christian, the core of our belief is that Christ rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, 
and is coming back to judge rightly, to put everything that is wrong back to right. And when that day comes, this prophecy from Isaiah will be fulfilled. It says, Jesus shall judge between the nations. Jesus shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. He is coming soon. Have you ever looked along the light of Jesus Christ? Have you ever beheld true reality by looking at Jesus, the light, the risen one? If you have not, all of eternity will be chaos. But he offers you an invitation to look along the light, see the deeper, pure, truer reason, the reason that's motivated by love. And that could only come by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Brother, sister, if you put your faith in your, but you're looking at the light, come underneath, meditate on the gospel, meditate on the power of God and the chaos around us begins to make a little more sense. And that gives us a strength, that gives us courage to be steadfast, to hold on until Jesus comes and the sky will be rolled out like a scroll and he'll be here. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. Lord, you had nothing to gain by doing what you did through your son, Jesus. We had it all to gain. Lord, thank you that even in the midst of it, you, you're guiding our lives, you're guiding our hearts, you're leading us, you're leading all of history. And Lord, thank you that you have us in your purview, that you're looking down to your sons and your daughters and you're preparing us a place and you're preparing a time where your son comes again to make everything that is wrong and turn it to right, and he will judge. Lord, thank you that he is coming again. Nothing's outside his grasp. Lord, you're not, you don't need us, but you want us to be part of your family and of your plan. Lord, those here that do not know you, Father, then they may look into the light. It will burn and sting for a moment, but they will see true reality. And Father, for our brothers and sisters that are having trouble looking Along the light, they're looking at the light. Lord, would you help them by your spirit, by your comforter. Lord, give them a strength to stand up in this changing tide of we, we see our world so that we can be, in a, be a stark difference to everything around us, that you give us greater opportunities, that other people will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So help us. We can't do it uh, without you. So we, we love you and we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.